Welcome to St. Martin in the Fields and welcome to Great Sacred Music and a special to welcome to those joining us online or in on-site for the first time. We're considering today the fascinating phrase green and pleasant land and its resonance throughout scripture and history up to the present day. You have to remember that the Bible was written by people who'd spent a lot of time in the desert, so green and pleasant land was a very significant thing for them. And there are two themes that run throughout the, the Bible in relation to green and pleasant land. The first is innocence, the notion of green shoots as being the beginning before the flower comes out and green becomes gray and brown and weary. So. The first sense is a sense of possibility and beginning. And then the other sense is a sense of abundance. And that's a sense that's still very much with us. If you think about how our culture is captivated by the notion of scarcity, scarcity of information, of knowledge, of revelation, and fundamentally, you could say, and I would say, a sense of the scarcity of God. Whereas, in fact, the Christian faith proclaims that there is too much creation and too much God. Our difficulty is in taking in the too much that God is. So conversion, you could understand, as the transformation from a mindset of scarcity to one of abundance. We're going to start today, as we always do, with singing a hymn together. If you haven't got a sheet with you and you're in the building, then there's one just in the middle of the aisle you can go and quickly pick up now. We're going to sing, and you'll find it on the inside uh, cover of your sheets, For the Beauty of the Earth. Foliot Pierpoint was 29 at the time he wrote this hymn. He was captivated by the beauty of the countryside that surrounded him. It first appeared in 1864 in a book of Eucharistic hymns and poems called Lyra Eucharistica, hymns and verses on the Holy Communion ancient and modern with other poems. It's a Eucharistic hymn in its, uh, in its origin and was originally entitled The Sacrifice of Praise, but the um, text was modified by the publishers of the third edition of hymns, Ancient and Modern, in 1916, so it could serve as a general hymn. So we remain seated, the voices stand and lead us as we sing together for the beauty of the earth.
We're now going to hear a couple of pieces, starting with a well-known setting of Jesus Christ, the Apple Tree. Uh, Jesus Christ, the Apple Tree was a poem written in the 18th century. I think we tend to think of it as if it's uh, medieval. But it was published in London's Spiritual Magazine in August 1761. It was probably written by Richard Hutchins, a Calvinist Baptist clergyman then in Long Buckby in Northamptonshire. But its first appearance in a hymnal was in 1784 in Divine Hymns or Spiritual Songs compiled by a lay Baptist minister from New Hampshire. And from then on, it started to become thought of as an American song, which of course it wasn't originally. Um, its significance theologically is its allusion to the apple tree and Song of Solomon, chapter two, often interpreted as a metaphor representing Jesus and to his description of his life as a tree of life, also a theme picked up in Revelation 22. We often think of the Bible as beginning with the tree in the Garden of Eden and then concluding with the tree in Revelation, the, the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations, as you may remember. And then, of course, the central moment of the Bible, the crucifixion of Jesus, is his death on a tree. So trees run throughout the whole story. Apple trees were commonly grown in England. There was an old English tradition of wassailing or wishing health to apple trees on Christmas Eve, which is how this ended up becoming a Christmas carol. Then we're gonna hear a second related anthem as the apple tree, which also picks up the allusion to Song of Songs.
Well, when you hear the word green in relation to English hymns of the 19th century, you quickly find yourself with there is a green hill far away. Mrs. C.F. Alexander, married to the Archbishop of Armagh, she was an Ulster woman. She wrote hymns to all the lines of the Apostles' Creed uh, to help her godsons learn the catechism and prepare for confirmation. She didn't have children of her own. Her, children, uh, her godchildren were bored as they were learning the catechism, so she wrote about a dozen hymns to help them learn the Christian faith. And There is a Green Hill Far Away uh, was written for the line, He was crucified under Pontius Pilate. It's a meditation of the cross where she sums up the traditional view of the atonement in the words, He, di he died that we might be forgiven. He died to make us good that we might go at last to heaven saved by his precious blood. But not far beneath the surface, there's always in uh, hymns of this generation uh, something a bit closer to the heart of Victorian spirituality. So in this case, take the final verse, O oh, dearly, dearly has he loved, and we must love him too, and trust in his redeeming blood, and try his works to do. The punchline comes at the very end. Let's enjoy this contemporary setting of There is a Green Hill Far Away. Well, it's going to be time for us all to sing again in a few moments, but I want to tell you a little bit about the story of the 
the hymn that we're going to sing because it's, <clears throat> as you've probably realized, it is the piece from which the phrase uh, green and pleasant land is actually derived. So in 1808, William Blake, the poet who was baptized just along the road here at St. James Piccadilly and is often said never set foot in a Church of England church again from that moment onwards, although I suppose if he was baptized as a baby, he never set foot in St. James Piccadilly either. Um, but he published in 1808 his epic poem, Milton, a poem, in two books, one of a collection of his writings known as the prophetic books. And in the preface to that book, he wrote, he published a poem called And Did Those Feet in Ancient Time. The poet was inspired by the apocryphal story that a young Jesus, accompanied by Joseph of Arimathea, a tin merchant, did you know, traveled to what is now England and visited Glastonbury during his unknown years. Blake asks whether a visit by Jesus briefly created heaven in England, and he contrasts that heaven with the dark satanic mills of the Industrial Revolution. So the first verse, as we now have it, has four rhetorical questions. He doesn't assert the historical truth of the story of Christ's visit, he asks whether his feet walked. He asks whether the Lamb of God was seen. He asked whether the countenance divine shone forth. And he then asks, was Jerusalem builded here? All rhetorical questions that don't receive answers. But then we get four answers. Bring me my bow of burning gold and so on. Four brings that start off the second verse. An exhortation to create an ideal society in England, whether or not there was a divine visit. Blake lived in London for most of his life, but he wrote much of his poem Milton while living in a cottage in Sussex, although it's been suggested by those who know that cottage well, which I think is now owned by, by the National Trust, that the, the desk at which he was writing was actually facing a wall. So the idea that he was looking out on the green and pleasant land may be, um, it may be untrue. Uh, but nonetheless, the phrase green and pleasant land has become associated uh, with an identifiably English landscape or society. So there's the 19th century part of the story, but the story gets really interesting in the early 20th century because Robert Bridges, the poet laureate, published the poem in his patriotic anthology of verse, The Spirit of Man, in 1916, at a time when morale had begun to decline because of the high number of casualties in the First World War and the perception that there was no end in sight. Bridges asked Sir Hubert Parry to put it to music, and Parry changed the previously four, four by four verse structure into a two by eight verse structure. But Parry, as you may know, wasn't at all sure about the patriotic nature of this force in England during the First World War, and the Fight for Right campaign that Bridges was supporting by publishing his book, The Spirit of Man. Um, Parry actually ended up dis distancing himself from the performance of this hymn in the cause of patriotism during the First World War, but it was too late by then. By 1917, the hymn had been taken up by the women's suffrage movement and then became the Win Women's Institute favorite song. You may be familiar with the phrase Jam and Jerusalem, associated with the Women's Institute even to this day. And then it reached the pinnacle of achievement in 2019 when it was voted 
the nation's favourite hymn. So let's remain seated and the voices will lead us as we sing this most resonant of tunes, finishing with the, la the line, in England's green and pleasant land. Still sung at the end of Labour Party conferences, uh, which may partly account for the decline of the Labour Party in Scotland. Do, uh, we're coming towards the end of Great Sacred Music for this week. I hope you've enjoyed yourself. If you have, there's an opportunity to make a donation as you leave or online. There are text opportunities, website opportunities, there's a scanning machine at the back and there's even an opportunity to give cash. Um, do join us on Sunday for Choral Classics at 3.15. You can see details on the back of the sheets and our next great sacred music uh, marks Independence Day in America a few days late. <clears throat> We're going to finish with uh, a more secular reference to uh, green and pleasant land. Uh, you might not think of it as being secular when you hear that it was written by William Byrd and we think of William Byrd as the great Reformation, post-Reformation composer who harmonized Catholic and Protestant spirituality uh, in the first choral anthems really composed in this country of the kind that we recognize them today. But he did tuck in 
the odd secular uh, composition into his works. And this is called Through Though Amaryllis Dance in Green. Um, it's a song about falling in love, regretting falling in love, wondering if it's ever really worth it, and all those kind of things that love songs tend to be about, plenty of references to fertility and beginnings, um, and perhaps tucked in there references to Queen Elizabeth I. See if you can spot them. Thanks for joining us. 